0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. As mentioned at the end of the last podcast, this episode is also based on a listener's suggestion. We're going to cover the history of Clubfoot. Now, interestingly, the story of the treatment of Clubfoot starts in antiquity with non-operative treatments, goes through a progression of surgical options, only to swing back to favor a non-operative approach in most cases. And like most episodes, we'll come across some old friends in the history of surgery, as well as meet some new ones. So let's get started in this episode of Legends of Surgery. Let's begin with describing clubfoot, also known as bot in French and Klumpfus in German. Now to be clear, what we're talking about mostly is the type of clubfoot that is congenital, as in patients are born with it, as opposed to the type that is acquired, which can be due to neurological diseases such as polio, meningitis, and nerve damage, and vascular causes and more specifically we're covering the idiopathic type, which is typically the only defect present and may be bilateral rather than the non-idiopathic types seen at birth that are associated with other deformities such as spina bifida. The congenital idiopathic type is one of the more common types of deformity seen at birth, estimated at one or two per thousand live births, although this varies by ethnicity, and its treatment played a major role in the development of the specialty of orthopedic surgery. Now the cause is multifactorial and not well understood, but recent research has identified some associated gene mutations. But we won't cover that in any detail, but rather focus on treatment. The medical term is talipes equinoveris. Now, talipes comes from the Latin talus for ankle and pes for foot. Equino means horse and refers to the heel being elevated like a horse's, and varus indicating the foot is turned in. People with the most common variation of clubfoot appear to have a foot that is rotated inwards and downwards and they appear to be walking on their ankles. Now, given how common it is, it is not surprising that the earliest records of clubfoot date back to antiquity. The mummy of the Egyptian pharaoh Sipta from the 12th century BCE showed a clubfoot, although this may have been due to polio. And the deformity was described in Greek and later Roman mythology in the god Hyphaestus. He was the son of Hera, who gave birth to him without her husband Zeus's participation, in revenge for him birthing the goddess Athena, from his own skull without her yeah greek mythology is weird anyway she wanted a son to outshine zeus but after a long and difficult labor hyphaestus was born from her thigh and was deformed with club feet of interest hyphaestus was the god of fire technical knowledge and blacksmithing and his forge was under a volcano his roman name was vulcan which is where the word volcano comes from and speaking of greeks The first research and written description of clubfoot was by Hippocrates, the so-called father of medicine. This comes from 400 BCE, and he considered most cases curable by repeated manipulations of the foot, followed by the application of strong bandages to hold the correction, with the goal of starting the treatments as early as possible. Following correction, special shoes were worn to maintain the position and prevent recurrence of the deformity. Like so many aspects of medicine, as we've seen throughout this podcast, the lessons and knowledge of antiquity were lost during the Dark Ages. The treatment of clubfoot was left to the barber surgeons as well as charlatans and bone setters. Now, if you've never heard the term bone setters, these were people who would treat fractures and manipulate joints and were essentially self-taught or learned by apprenticeship. Now, here's one interesting story I came across. In Great Britain, there was a famous bone setter called Sally Mapp, who was known as Crazy Sally. Apparently, the nickname came from her reputation for quarreling with her father and drinking, and she would often wander the countryside in a drunken state, shouting obscenities. Now, she learned the bone-setting trade from her father, and was known for her arm strength and ability to reset almost any bone. She even set the bones of racehorses. A crazy Sally worked at the Gretchen Coffee House in London and the town of Epsom. And yes, Epsom salts originally came from the mineral waters there. Now, let's now move into the more scientific world of the Renaissance. A number of areas of development were occurring during this period, so rather than go chronologically, let's look at it more from each different area of development. This included improved knowledge of the disease, the development of non-operative techniques, and the beginning of surgical techniques. One of the earliest attempts to understand the disease better was by Ambrose Paré. In his published work, there is a chapter entitled The Monsters and Prodigies, where he explains clubfoot, this vice sometimes comes from the mother's belly, who during her pregnancy has remained too long seated with her legs crossed, or if the mother has the same defect, or because of the nurse not having held the child straight. End quote. Now, many of you may be familiar with Scarpa's fascia, a superficial layer in the abdominal wall. This is named for the Italian anatomist Antonio Scarpa, who lived from 1752 to 1832 and was a student of Giovanni Morgagni, a famous teacher of anatomy at the legendary University of Padua in Italy. Scarpa studied the anatomy of clubfoot by dissecting the feet of deceased children with the deformity. He wrote a text entitled Memoir on Congenital Clubfoot of Children in 1803, where he not only described the principles of his treatment method, but also wrote extensively on the anatomy and pathology of the deformity. Now the principles of Hippocrates were rediscovered during this time namely the gentle and repetitive manipulation and bandaging of the foot. Paré introduced the use of therapeutic shoes in association with manipulation and conservative bandaging. And many different physicians developed different apparatuses to mechanically move the foot or feet into proper position, so we'll just highlight a few. Wilhelm Fabry, also known as the father of German surgery, described a device composed of double-screw stretchers for correction of clubfoot, known as the Fabry instrument. I'll post a picture on Twitter. In Switzerland, Jean Andre Vanel, seventeen forty to seventeen ninety one, trained at the Royal College of Surgeons at Montpellier. One of the local ministers brought his seven year old son to Vanel with club feet following polio infection, and the boy stayed with Vanel for over a year at his home undergoing repeated manipulations. This likely inspired Vanel to create a center for the treatment of club foot. In seventeen eighty he took over a ruined cluster of buildings in Orb called Labour and slowly restored them, eventually turning them into the world's first orthopedic institute. This had a hospital facility, an occupational workshop, a therapeutic bath, a classroom for the patients, and a brace shop. And this is a neat bit of trivia. A plaster mold would be made of the deformity when the patient was admitted, and a similar one made when discharged for comparison. The treatments involved warm baths, massages, manipulation, stretching, and the use of active splints. And one of these was called the sabot de venelle, which is French for Vanelle shoe, which used a lateral sidebar to provide constant tension. This use of leverage with a rod fastened to a sole plate would be the basis of clubfoot appliances for the next 200 years. And I'd like to mention one more apparatus. Now, we've talked about gentle and manual manipulation of the foot, but there's also something called forcible manipulation. The most well-known example of which is the Thomas wrench. This was created by Welsh surgeon Hugh Owen Thomas who studied medicine at Edinburgh and University College in London, and came from a family of bone setters. He also was known for the Thomas test for hip flexion contracture and the Thomas splint used in fracture treatment. The Thomas wrench was used to force the foot into position, often crushing bone, and was said that if properly applied, could easily detach the foot from a cadaver. And not surprisingly, this led to many injuries and poor outcomes. Okay, we could cover a number of other devices and their inventors, but you get the idea. Let's move on to the history of surgical correction of clubfoot. Now, the first operation proposed to treat clubfoot was an open tenotomy, meaning a relatively large incision made over a tendon, in this case the Achilles tendon, and surgically severing the tendon. The early operations were done in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, but these were dangerous operations with significant complications, and so a subcutaneous, or more accurately percutaneous, tenotomy was devised, in fact, by our old friend John Hunter. Let's revisit that story. John Hunter actually ruptured his own Achilles tendon while dancing, and I guess there are worse ways to injure yourself, in 1767. He treated himself by wearing a high heel and constricting the calf muscles with bandages to limit contractions. This led him to perform several experiments on dogs, where he would divide the Achilles tendon with a small knife, essentially a percutaneous tenotomy, meaning a small incision, and then sacrificing the dogs at intervals to study the tendon. By this experiment, Hunter realized that the two ends would join, or union, like that of a fractured bone when there is no wound in the overlying skin. The idea was to draw the skin far from the tendon to avoid infection. The first to perform this clinically was the French surgeon Jacques-Mathieu Delpec, who performed the operation on a nine-year-old boy on May 16, 1816. Following the operation, an apparatus was used to slowly correct the aquinas deformity, or the foot pointing down. His operation was not well-received, and it wasn't until February 28th of 1831 that another surgeon attempted this. That surgeon was a German named George Frederick Louis Strohmeyer, who had established a small orthopedic clinic in Hanover in 1828. Using Del Peck's publications as a basis, he operated on a 19-year-old male student who had a deformity secondary to polio. Having success with this one, Strohmeyer performed another and published a report of the operations in 1833. He would later write a textbook on operative orthopedics advocating the percutaneous tenotomy, which included using a smaller incision to reduce infections. Okay, so you get the idea, and I won't belabor the point by telling you about every surgeon that used this technique, but I do want to tell you about one more because it's such a good story. Now, The surgeon we're talking about is William John Little, 1810 to 1894, who studied medicine in London, England. What makes him interesting is that he actually had an equinus deformity of his left foot, due to an attack of polio at age four. Now, despite this, he was able to become a member of the Royal College of Surgeons in 1832. He devoted himself to orthopedics, in part to find a correction of his own deformity. Little actually went to see the German surgeon Strohmeyer just mentioned, and observed him perform the percutaneous tenotomy. This convinced Little to let Strohmeyer operate on him, and during his convalescence, Little learned how to do the procedure and manage the postoperative care. Returning to England, Little performed his first percutaneous tenotomy on February 20th, 1837. He operated on many more patients after this and wrote up his experience in a paper called A Treaty on the Nature of Clubfoot, published in 1839. The following year Little founded the first hospital in Britain devoted entirely to the treatment of orthopedic problems. This has grown into what is now known as the Royal National Orthopedic Hospital. Little is considered the founder of the specialty of orthopedics in Britain. But, despite his success, he never forgot the operation and surgeon that transformed his life and named one of his sons, Louis Strohmeyer Little, in his honor. Side note, it was actually Little that coined the term talapes in describing clubfoot. Okay, let's move on to some of the more radical surgeries that developed in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. One area was to either alter or remove some of the bones of the foot. One popular method was something called astragalectomy which is removal of the astragalus bone, more commonly known as the talus bone, a part of the bones making up the ankle. Now, The origin of astragalus is simply from the Greek word for ankle, astragalos, and talus comes from the Latin word for ankle or heel. The first recorded astragalectomy was in 1608 by German surgeon Wilhelm Fabry for a compound fracture rather than clubfoot. Its first use for clubfoot was in 1872. An American surgeon named Royal Whitman performed thousands of these operations in the early part of the 20th century in the fabulously named Hospital for the Ruptured and Crippled in New York, now known as the Hospital for Special Surgery. The next phase for surgical correction of club feet was the elongation of tendons. A number of surgeons contributed to these techniques, but most well-known is Alessandro Cotavilla, 1861-1902, to 1902, who was the director of the Rizzoli Orthopedics Institute of Bologna. His operation involved opening and shaping the articulations, which is where bones meet each other, and then surgically elongating associated tendons and muscles. Now, this was revolutionary at the time, and is even in use today for certain cases. I came across a great quote about this operation from Italian orthopedic surgeon Francesco de la in 1940, quote, The operation of Codavilla is one of the bases of orthopedics. It is useless to try to change it. It is born perfect, End quote. Now, American orthopedic surgeon A.M. Phelps in 1891 not only divided the Achilles tendon, but performed radical surgery on the foot, releasing all of the soft tissues on the medial or inside part of the foot. Tendon transfers became popular in the early part of the 20th century, as well as wedge resection of bone. However, despite all these advances, in general, surgical outcomes were not great, with an average failure rate of 25%, and complications were high. Eventually, as I alluded to at the beginning of the podcast, the thinking around clubfoot treatment came back to the ancient idea of gentle manipulation and bandaging. Surgery was reserved for only rare cases. Now, a number of orthopedic surgeons described this more conservative approach, so we'll just cover a few of the more well-known ones. The first is Jason Hiram Kite, 1891 to 1986, who worked at the Scottish Rite Hospital in Georgia and advocated manipulation of the clubfoot and holding the correction with plaster casts. What was unique about kites approach was that each component of the deformity was corrected separately instead of simultaneously therefore many months and cast changes were necessary And because of how long this took to correct the deformity the kite technique did not take off pun intended so this seems like a good place actually to take a minute and go back to cover the history of casting now initially done with starch bandages in the 18th century another famous surgeon we've met before wilhelm Cheselden of england Episode sixty seven, described the use of these. He related what he had learned from a bone setter named Mister Presgrove. The way was after putting the limb in a proper posture, to wrap it up in rags dipped in the whites of eggs and a little flour mixed. This drying grew stiff and kept the limb in a good posture. Cheselden would then replace the bandages once a fortnight, which is two weeks. This comes from the old English Wartine night, which literally means fourteen days. Nothing to do with forts, as I used to think. The introduction of Plaster of Paris bandages was a great improvement, allowing clubfoot deformities to be manipulated and then held in place. In fact, the invention of Plaster of Paris was revolutionary in the history of orthopedics, as anyone that's done a rotation in orthopedics, or emergency medicine for that matter, surely knows. Now, To start, since Plaster of Paris is more associated with immobilizing fractures, we should consider the history of fracture treatment. Now, though the idea of holding a fracture in place to avoid deformity and pain and yet allow the patient to be able to move around was recognized early, the best way to do so was not. Splints were made out of bamboo and wooden sticks, and materials like wax, starch, and cardboard were attempted. Now, Plaster of Paris as a material has been around for a very long time, even being found inside pyramids. It is so called because it was extensively mined from Montmartre in the Paris district, and its more formal name is calcine gypsum, now you know. Anyways, it was used in construction and by sculptors until surgeons attempted to use it for fracture treatment. At first, this was done by placing legs with fractures of the long bones in long, narrow boxes and filling the gaps with plaster of Paris. Now, this must have weighed a ton and would be quite unwieldy. The idea of incorporating plaster of Paris into bandages is credited to two surgeons who came upon the idea independently, Antonius Matheson, a Dutch military surgeon working in a military hospital in Harlem, and Nikolay Ivanovich Piragov, head of surgery of the St. Petersburg Medical Surgical Academy and Russian army surgeon during the Crimean War in the 1850s. All right, let's get back to clubfoot. Next is what is now one of the two main methods of correcting clubfoot called the Ponseti method. Ignacio Vives Ponseti, 1914 to 2009, graduated from medical school at the University of Barcelona, one day before the Spanish Civil War started. Two days later, he joined the Republican Army as a surgeon. When Barcelona fell to Franco and the Nationalists on January 26, 1939, Ponsetti managed to escape to France while transporting 40 wounded soldiers by mule over the Pyrenees with the help of local smugglers. From there, after half a year in a refugee camp, he obtained a passport from the Mexican government and moved to Mexico City. Unable to find work in Mexico, Ponsetti then moved to Iowa City in 1941, having been referred by a Mexican orthopedic surgeon to a colleague at the University of Iowa. While there, Ponsetti did a research project looking at outcomes of club foot surgery over a 20 year period. He found that surgery rarely left patients without impairments and set off to find a non operative method. With a thorough knowledge of foot anatomy gained through dissection of stillborn babies, he experimented on infants in his clinic. By 1948, he had devised a method of manipulation and serial casting, which had a different approach than kites, and he published his long-term results in 1963. By the 1990s, Ponsetti had treated over 2,000 cases of clubfoot. His method was slow to be taken up, probably due to a lack of familiarity, but Dr. Ponsetti himself had a more cynical opinion about it. When asked about this in an interview in 2006, he said, quote, surgeons love their little knives, end quote. Now, despite this cynicism, Ponsetti's method is now one of the most frequently used in the world. The other major one is known as the French method, or the functional method. Developed in the early 1980s by Henri ben head of orthopedics at the University Children's Hospital in Paris, this involved daily manipulation of the newborn clubfoot by a physiotherapist, followed by adhesive taping to maintain correction, rather than the casting used by Ponsetti. While labor-intensive, It is associated with high levels of successful correction without the need for surgery. Now, As we've seen, the treatment of clubfoot has gone from gentle manipulation first proposed by Hippocrates through various devices and operations and then returned to a more conservative approach, or there and back again. Now, what's the future for the treatment of clubfoot? Given the variety of deformities seen, it's likely that some combination of surgical structural release is only done as an adjunct to a conservative treatment approach but will be personalized based on each patient, or as one paper called it, an a la carte approach. Now that wraps up another episode of the Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. The next episode will be the last one before Halloween. That got me thinking about zombies, which continues to excite the imagination of pop culture. Maybe we'll explore that a little bit. But that in turn got me thinking about brains. And so I want to cover the strange and controversial history of the lobotomy. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download episodes and leave a comment there or follow me on Twitter at SurgeryLegends, like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery, or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. And as always, thanks for listening.